if we were to ask the, the question, uh, who in our society, who in our world uh, receives the most attention, who would you say? What kinds of people uh, come to mind or who would make that list? Uh, would it be athletes, uh, entertainers, perhaps uh, the wealthy, or would it be politicians? Uh, the list perhaps could go on. Let's ask the same question about the Christmas story. Who in the birth narratives in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel receive the most attention? Who appear to be most important in those stories? Certainly the central character would be the Lord Jesus himself, the the Messiah, the Redeemer who has come to restore and redeem his people. But outside of Christ, what other people or characters come to mind? Perhaps Mary or Joseph Uh, The Magi seem each Christmas season to get a good amount of attention. Uh, What about the shepherds out in the field? What about the least attention in the narratives of Matthew and Luke? Who receives the least attention in these stories? Who's uh, most easily overlooked? Well, I would suggest to you that there's one person who is most easily overlooked, uh, and she comes in in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2. It's a woman... It's an elderly woman. It's Anna. Uh, Luke chapter 2. But what we're told about Anna says a lot about what pleases the Lord our God and the kind of faith that he is seeking to form in us and in all of his people. So let's draw upon Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. Her story only comprises three verses, and I don't think there's any mention of her elsewhere in the scriptures. Just three verses. Luke 2, verse 36, comes just after the narrative about Simeon. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Though the character of Anna only takes up uh, three verses in scripture, her presence in the biblical narrative is profound for a number of reasons. One, her presence highlights the very powerful and sometimes surprising ways in which our God will work. How he will use some character, someone, or something that appears outwardly insignificant, easily overlooked, to bring glory uh, to his name. Certainly the supreme example of this is the symbol of the cross itself. Um, It strikes me at times as a bit of irony that that, that the symbol of the cross, uh, we might wear it around our neck uh, as jewelry. It might get tattooed on a person's uh, body to be displayed. But in Jesus' day, and for centuries, it was a symbol that represented shame. Shame. It was a shameful symbol. It was a symbol that represented torture and humiliation and a brutal end to life itself. And yet the lowliest, the most savage form of capital punishment 
crucifixion would be used by God to accomplish his great and glorious redemption. This is what the great chapter of Isaiah 55 is stressing when the Lord is telling us about his unique ways in saving grace, which is what that chapter is about. It's the chapter where he says, for my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And at the beginning of Isaiah 55, there's an invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. His ways are not our ways. There's no ladder of stepping up to merit the favor of God. No, it is freely offered. His ways are not our ways. And when it comes to the figure of Anna, we see God's unique ways as he reveals his glorious purposes to those who appear outwardly insignificant. And that is Anna in a number of ways, a few ways. For one, she's described as a widow. She had been married for only seven years before losing her husband, which meant she not only experienced the pain of losing that partner, that companion, that support at a young age, but likely what would follow, the difficulties that would come in not having this husband to provide, to support her, having to depend in the years later more on herself, on other relatives, on the family of God. But we're also told clearly in the text that she's quite elderly. There's there's a difference in interpretation among scholars regarding her age. The text tells us that she's either 84 years old at this time or that she lived for 84 years from the time she became a widow. And so... Uh, people divide on this. If she was married at 13 or 14 and she was married for seven years around age 20, add another 84, it's putting her over 100 years old. And the commentators uh, differ on this. Either way, we can say she's well past her prime. She's in her last season of life, her last years. And in her overall condition, uh, the late Bishop J.C. Ryle says this, The trials, the desolations, and temptations of such a condition were likely very great. And yet, despite her circumstance outwardly, her lot in life, it's her godly character that is shining through. It's why she is here in the story. We're told she's of the tribe of Asher. She's among the 12 tribes of Israel. She's a Jew. She's an Israelite. This is important. Think about the time of the first century In the Jewish world, it is a very low, low point spiritually. We know this from the religious leadership, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. They were spiritually corrupted, hungry for power. They were pretentious in displaying their religiosity and piety. And they failed miserably in recognizing the very thing that Simeon and Anna are looking forward to, awaiting the redemption of the people of God and this Messiah who would come. We're we're told about the Pharisees in many places. Uh, Later in Luke's gospel is one of them to see the corruption of the leadership and the corruption of Israel in many ways at this time. In Luke chapter 11, uh, during Jesus' public ministry, he's invited by a Pharisee to dine with him. And the Pharisee 
recognizes and questions, he's surprised that Jesus does not carry out this extra-biblical tradition of ceremonial washing uh, before he reclines with him. And Jesus takes him and the Pharisees to task. It's recorded in other Gospels as well. To, to get a flavor of it, Jesus says, You Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Woe to you. You tithe mint, rue, and, and every herb, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Justice, righteousness, mercy, the love of God. You love the best seat in the synagogue and marketplaces. You love to be seen by others. It was their own kind of prideful religiosity that was blinding them from seeing the true redemption and the true redeemer found in Jesus Christ. But Anna's character shines through. And I think there's important points and applications for us here. For one, God always has his true people. However few they may be, he always has them whether it's in the days of Noah where there's widespread godlessness in the world or that low point in Israel's history among the judges where we're told that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Or here in the days of Anna, the, the religious atmosphere is very spiritually dark. But God has his faithful people, those who will continue to have their eyes on the Lord. Do we live in that kind of time? Are we those people? fixed upon the Lord, but he will have his people. Secondly, God calls all kinds of people to experience his wonderful grace, and he uses all kinds of people to display his glorious purposes. Think about Anna. She's not an authority figure. She's not in a position of power. She's not outwardly impressive. She's not affluent. And yet, as John Calvin says, only these two, Simeon, and Anna, in Luke's gospel, welcomed the Lord Jesus. That while the scribes and the priests of that time had great renown, yet the Spirit of God dwelt in Simeon and Anna, while the leaders were quite destitute of it. This is one of the reasons that Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, uh, stresses their, their position, their own calling, Remember what Paul said. He said, consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. There's a very helpful one-line comment in my study Bible uh, of verses 36 and 37. It says this, God reveals his purposes, his secret purposes in history to humble servants who continually live in his presence. We're, we're in a culture that values titles, positions, power, degrees. There's a place for all of those things in God's world and in God's economy. But none of them determine a godly life. None of them determine godliness. And that's what's emphasized here in Anna's life. There is one distinguishing gift there that Anna has. 
She's called a prophetess, if you noticed. In this way, she was like uh, Philip's daughters mentioned in Acts chapter 21, who we are told prophesied. Anna was a prophetess. She prophesied. She had that gift. It wasn't so much referring to her constantly foretelling the future or even using this gift in an outward public way. It's really language that means she was gifted in interpreting the word of God and the will of God. Now we might wonder, well, how, how did Simeon and Anna have such confidence that indeed, as the Christ child is presented in the temple, that indeed this is the Redeemer, this is the Messiah? Well, we heard read earlier about Simeon in verses 25 and 26. We're told specifically of him that the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So for Simeon, there was a direct and divine revelation, the scripture says, that he would see the Lord Jesus. But that's not what was revealed to Anna, not in that way. What we see probably from Anna is that by God's grace and gifting of her, she understood the word, she discerned God's will, that as she went to the temple at that very hour and the child is there, God by his grace, opened her eyes that she recognized him and by faith believed this to be indeed the Christ. What comes through most indeed is her character. It's captured in verse 37. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. What a great verse to capture the life of a person. She did not depart from the temple. This is important, I think, because she is of her own accord entering the temple courts, desiring to worship the Lord, knowing, as we heard in Psalm 11, that, that the Lord is in his holy temple. She understood the significance of the temple, that this is the place that God had promised throughout the Old Testament to dwell and make his presence known. And so she's drawing near to the temple courts constantly, daily, regularly. Unlike Simeon, who was away from the temple, he drew near to it because he received a revelation, a revelation from the Spirit that Christ would be presented. But Anna's a little different. She's attending worship. She's attending the temple daily. And so what we have described of her is really a a very sincere heart, a constant devotion. And the language used of her devotion being night and day is language that not only is communicating sort of this constancy, but it's a word that's distinct from the pharisaical set times and patterns of fastings and prayers. Now, we all know it's good to have set times of worship, set times of of corporate prayer. We are in that at this time, in this hour right now, to have set times for our private uh, devotional lives. But part of what comes through in the character of Anna Anna is her non-compulsory action. Her devotion is voluntary, it's elective. We see that just as we read through it. It's coming from a heart that longs for the presence of the Lord. We should desire that at set times, but we should desire that in a way that reflects the character of Anna as well. 
And then the word Luke uses for prayer specifically means request. It's a petitioning. Versus another word used for prayer to mean more general praise or devotion or thanksgiving. One author put it this way. The use of this term seems to indicate that Anna was begging God for the fulfillment of his messianic promises. And I think Anna serves as a godly example both for the person who is new in the faith as well as the seasoned Christian, the one who's been walking with the Lord for many years. For the new believer, perhaps you are among them, uh, she demonstrates something vital for a growing faith, and that is a constancy and a consistency in living out godly practices and disciplines. Practices in the word, Practices in prayer, practices in fellowship, practices in worship. Jerry Bridges, uh, the author, uh, writes this. It is practice where the skill is developed that makes the athlete competitive in his sport. And it is the practice of godliness that enables us to become godly Christians. There's no shortcut to Olympic level skill. And there's no shortcut to godliness. It is the day in and day out faithfulness to the means which God has appointed and which the Holy Spirit uses that will enable us to grow in godliness. He says we must practice godliness. Now, now this is not a faith that is obtained through these practices or obtained by our works, but it is a faith that bears the fruit of works. And so we can say in that way it is a faith that is formational, And it is is formed through these practices as we enter into them and as we devote ourselves to the Lord. Anna was shaped as a person over time. And that's what God is about. He's about shaping his people increasingly over their life. But Anna also serves as an example for those of us who have been walking with the Lord for many years. While we don't know how long she was attending worship, how many months, how many years she was longing for the coming Redeemer, what we see is a heart for the Lord. So her devotion is not mere duty. There's a delight, it seems to me. She, upon seeing the Christ child at that very hour, expresses thanksgiving. We don't know her precise motivations, but she's longing and eagerly waiting for the Redeemer. Now, duty is good. Duty after the things of God is a good thing. It's good to be dutiful. But the scripture not only calls us to duty and obedience, it calls us and commands our hearts. It commands our affections. He commands our, our, our feelings. Matthew 8, 35 Forgive your brother from your heart. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Those are commands calling for a certain heart set toward the Lord, toward others. And all believers, certainly seasoned ones, need to be on the lookout for the soil of the heart becoming callous or hard, where Christian living becomes only dutiful living. God desires our heart and affections. 
that indeed we would delight in the duty to which God calls us. The last thing I want us to see is in verse 38. It says, And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. By the providence of God, as she's going up to the temple, as she had been doing daily for how long? Yet on this day, Mary and Joseph have come, both for her ceremonial purification, according to the Mosaic law, to present the child uh, to the Lord. And as she comes, there perhaps is Simeon taking the child in his arms, as we read earlier, and, and praising God. Verse 30 My eyes have seen your salvation, a light to the Gentiles. Glory for your people Israel. This is what the people of God were waiting for. A coming redeemer. Verse 38 says they were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Very similar language to what we hear of Simeon back in verse 25. The people, or he, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Two ideas, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Waiting for the consolation. That's, that's the word paracle, paraclesis, where we, get, where, where we have paraclete. That's the language given of the Holy Spirit. He's the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to be the uh, consoler, the comforter of God's people. And the people of God are waiting, the true people, for the one who will console them and comfort them. And here it's applied to Jesus himself. He comes as the comforter to shepherd and care for his people. They were waiting for that. And then in verse 38, they're waiting for the redemption. So there's consolation and there's redemption. That's the idea of taking back something that is lost. It's a ransom, a price paid for the deliverance of a people. And both of these things are found in Jesus Christ. Comfort, consolation, and redemption. But I want to conclude by stressing the significance of waiting. Simeon, we're told, was waiting. Anna was waiting. She goes and she tells others also who were waiting. Waiting can be hard. We don't naturally like to wait. What have you had to wait for that's been hard in your own life? Perhaps you've waited for the return of a spouse from a long trip or even longer, a deployment. Maybe you're waiting to find a companion in your life or you're waiting to hear back about a job offer or you're waiting for the next season of life when, when you'll be past a, a difficulty or an ailment. Waiting is hard. But Christians are called to be a people who wait to be still before the Lord. That is to let the Lord be Lord. Allow his timing to work. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Waiting's not a passive idea. Anna wasn't passive. Simeon wasn't passive. These people were not passive waiting. It's faithful serving. It's faithful devotion. And that's why God calls us to wait upon him. 
that we would know something greater than immediate satisfaction. That's why it's good to wait. Because it's to draw us to the Lord. And that's what we need most. His presence and His word and His grace and His peace. I was gifted for Christmas, among other things, uh, Charles Spurgeon's nicely bound leather, uh, morning and evening. So I was flipping through it just last yesterday, I guess. Yeah, that was Christmas. Uh, and very quickly came to the, these words. It's not for the date today, but this is what he says. It would be more agreeable to our flesh and blood to have a speedy answer. But believing souls have learned to be submissive and to find it good to wait for as well as upon the Lord. Delayed answers often set the heart searching itself and so lead to contrition and spiritual reformation. Like Anna, we're called to be a people who wait. We're not waiting for Christ's first coming. We've received a glorious redemption through Christ's life and death and resurrection. But we are waiting still. It's not the end yet. We're waiting for his return. We've not yet arrived. The consummation is yet to come. And so we live in between the times. And I think like Anna, our sights should be forward-looking. We're not there yet. And while we look, we should wait. We should be still. We wait upon the Lord. And we do that by drawing near to him in prayer, drawing near to him in his word, drawing near to one another in fellowship, and committing ourselves to a life of devotion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Anna's example in Scripture, Simeon's example, that you always have a people and we can draw near to your word and see those lights that shine in darkness by your mercy and grace. We thank you most of all for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was one who indeed waited, who endured, who waited in Gethsemane, who waited upon the cross until it was finished for us all. We thank you, Lord, for the redemption that we have, for the glorious calling that is ours, whatever our lot or, or station in life might be. And Lord, as we are a people called to wait, might we wait upon you, drawing our strength spiritually, drawing our joy from your glorious presence. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.